Victory, my family, I love you. I hope you're having an incredible weekend. I know God's moving already through the praise and worship, through the fellowship, just being at church together. And I believe God has a word in store for you. This weekend, we are blessed to have Pastor Ron McIntosh bringing the message. Pastor Ron has been a part of our church for 20 plus years. His wife, Judy, and him have three amazing children, many grandchildren, and they have poured their hearts into this ministry, into this city. Good morning, everybody. You guys ready for the word? Take your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 11. You get excited about the word. Pastor has asked me to preach on faith. So I want to talk to you today on faith going from breakthrough to breakout. Come on, anybody ready for a breakout? So I want to begin just by telling you a little story. Sometime back, I was doing a meeting in Austin, Texas at Shoreline Christian Center. And uh, they had 12,000 people go through there this weekend at their services. And that particular morning, I was ministering. The service went just a little long, and we had a few signs and wonders that broke out, and I had just enough time to get back to the, the green room to have some brief fellowship before I had to leave to make my flight on American Airlines back to Tulsa. And so I left with my suit on, and I was preaching a suit in that day, and a tie, and my, my mega briefcase from Seoul, Korea. And so uh, I head to the airport to get on American Airlines and fly back to Tulsa. Now, if you fly American Airlines very much, and I do, I have going on two million miles with American Airlines. And so... Now, if you fly much of them, you're going to go through Dallas, Fort Worth. You just are. If you're going through heaven, you're going to heaven. You're going through DFW. Come on, that's just how it works. <laughs> so I got, I got to Dallas, and I was sitting there with not near as much of the fruit of the spirit as I ought to have had. I was a little bit impatient. I wanted to get home. It had been an extended trip. I wanted to come home and see Judy and the boys. And so, as I was <clears throat> sitting there, all of a sudden, this announcement comes over the PA system: the flight from Dallas to Tulsa, has been overbooked. Ticketed passengers, please report to the ticket counter. So immediately I go into my coat pocket and I pull out my ticket. I have a boarding pass for every juncture of my flight except from Dallas to Tulsa. So with trepidation, I walk up to the ticket counter. I hand the woman my ticket and she says, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. McIntosh. And I'm assuming she's going to say, you know, we're going to have to put you on a later flight. Instead, she says, I'm going to have to put you in first class instead. I said, oh, I receive it in Jesus' name. Thank you very much. And so <clears throat> I get on the plane, and, <clears throat> man, I look like I belong in first class. Man, I got my suit on, my power tie, my mega briefcase from Seoul, Korea. I mean, I look like I belong in first class. So I'm sitting there, and the plane quickly fills up every last seat except the one next to me. And so just before we take off, this guy comes in and sits down next to me. Now, obviously, he's successful, at least he has money, because his shoes cost more than my suit did. I got a mega briefcase, but he's got a mega, mega briefcase, you know, so. Now, I don't always like to get into conversation on airplanes, because inevitably, they turn and they ask you what you do for a living, and I had just read top 50 professions, 50 being the worst, and evangelist at that time was number 47, and that was just below drug dealers, so I don't always like to tell somebody that I'm the and so, and so we sit down, and there comes that little awkward lull, you know. There's this awkward lull, like the conversation's about to start. 
And I don't want him to ask me the question, so I look at him and say, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and immediately he tells me that he's a consultant to Fortune 500 companies. He pulls out this spreadsheet. He's talking about the billions of dollars that he oversees, the expenditures and the, the profit making, and all the things that go on. And so finally he ends his little spiel. And I don't want him to ask me the question, so I look out the window. But the inevitable moment arrives. And almost condescendingly he says, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and brother, when he said that, suddenly I sat at my seat, I squared my shoulders, and I looked at him and I said, I work for the richest Jew in the world. That's what I do for a living. He, he, he said, you what? And I said it again. He said, well, what do you guys do? I said, we take old things and we make them new. Glory to God, that's what we do. He said, well, how does that work exactly? I said, I take successful people like you. I introduce them to him. He makes them more successful than they already are. He said, really? He said, that sounds a little bit like I do. What I do, he said, I'd love to meet him sometime. He said, could you set it up? I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so now he goes into his pocket. He pulls out his business card. He reaches out and he hands it to me. He says, when can we set it up? I said, how about right now? He said, is he on the plane? I said, he's pretty much everywhere, you know. And so now he's looking around the first class. And he said, well, which one is he? I said, his name is Jesus. <laughs> he said, are you an evangelist? I said, as a matter of fact, I am. And so all the way in, he told me all of his Oral Roberts stories. I told him all my Jesus stories. When we got off the plane, we're walking down the aisle to baggage claim, and he looks at me and said, man, I've never met anybody like you in my life. He said, I'm going back to church. By the time we picked up his bags, he was set for an eternal destination. Hallelujah. I want to tell you something. God is so good. And here's why I tell you the story. This is not the time to back up, back off, back down, or back away. But this is the time to press in to everything God's got for us. It's time to go from break through to break out. Come on, can I get an amen in here? Now, I want to tell you something. Last week, Caleb preached on personal revival. And I think that was awesome. But when personal revival begins to spread, it becomes corporate revival. And then that touches the church. It becomes an unstoppable force. It touches the church. It touches the city. It touches the state. It touches the nation. It touches the nation. And I believe that God wants to take us from breakthrough to breakout. You say, what's the difference? In breakthrough, what happens is that you get a touch from God, usually at the assistance of someone else. But, and that is for the moment. But breakout is when something happens to you, you don't need somebody else to pray for you. You know how to pray for yourself. You can get access to the kingdom of God. You can get access to healing. You get access to his provision. Yeah. It's time for faith. So Judy and I just got back from Florida. And <clears throat> I preached in two churches while we were down there, one in Orlando, one in uh, Naples, Florida. <clears throat> we did five services down there. Every single service we were in, the altar call was 95% of the people without exaggeration. They just filled the, the aisles, they were up, uh, filled the altar, they were up the aisles. And so, in this one service in Naples, I was preaching that morning, I faced entirely different than what I'm going to do today, and the altar jammed with people all the way across the front, all the way up the aisles. And I looked at the edge of the altar area was a, was a handsome Hispanic couple. And I looked over them, and I had a word. I was giving some words to people. I had a word for them. I said, 
your destiny has is, is, is been sought to be interrupted. And it's something to do with physicality. But the Lord says your breakthrough comes today, your breakout comes today, and God heals you in Jesus' name. And I went on and ministered, so the service is over. And after the service is done, they make a beeline for me after the service. And they say, you can't believe what you just told us. It just ignited us. They said, we have just been to the doctor about two weeks ago. And when we got to the doctor, they diagnosed uh, Julia with thyroid cancer. And your prayer just really did something to us. And I said, well, thank God. So they came back that night to the night service. The auditorium was jammed and packed once again. And when I gave the altar call, again, the altar is jammed. But this time, they're right to the front. I went up there and laid my hand under the power. God hit her. She fell out in the spirit. And then God started moving through the process of the meeting. Many things took place. Now, most of the time when you pray for somebody, you don't really have a full idea of what has transpired. You know that God did something, but you don't know the results of it. So we go home. We get back to Tulsa. And about a week later, I get this email from J.C. and Julia Mencera, and it says this. We just got back from the doctor, and we just had to talk to you. They're astounded. They diagnosed Julia with thyroid cancer. Now they can't find any cancer in her body whatsoever. <laughs> and then they added, our faith is exploding. How many of you believe it's time for faith to explode in the body of Christ whatsoever? I've talked to leaders all over the world. In this last four to six weeks, notable leaders, and they're, they're noting that, that there's this conspicuous absence of faith in the body of Christ. And it's time for faith to be reignited. It's time for faith to be manifested. It's time for us to see us go from breakthrough to breakout. So let's take a look at some things. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And, and really Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, probably Paul, starts out with a thought in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38, it says this, but my righteous one, how many of you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? Can I see your hand? He says, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. So he says, I don't want you to back up, back off, back down, or back away, but instead I want you to press in to salvation. Now, salvation is not just someday you're getting to go to heaven. That word save means to save, to heal, to deliver, to set free. It means to make whole, to be complete. I mean, so all of it that has salvation, he says, so I don't want you to shrink back. I want you to press into everything that is your rightful inheritance, that is yours, of being a saved child of God. He says, now, let me tell you how that begins to take place. And so he goes into Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. All right, now, I'm going to take the next few minutes. I'm going to talk to you about five simple things that the author of Hebrews tells us about faith. So let me just help you understand this. Caleb said this last week. I think it's so important. He said, what we need is not more information. How many of you agree we don't need more information? So what we need is to understand the integrity and dependability of the person who gives that information. So the word faith, pistis or pistuo, that word faith, it really means to trust or be trustworthy. 
So really what's happening is this. You need to trust in the character and the motive of God. That's what faith really is. So what does that mean exactly? What, is, what, what, are, what are you getting at with that? So this word means you've got to trust in his character. Now what is God's character? His character is this. God cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Titus 1, 2, God does not lie. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. Get ready to give me an awesome amen, complete with clapping of hands, stomping of feet, rolling in the aisle, slapping your neighbor, and various and sundry aerobic exercises. Here it comes. I'll point it and let you know when. Here it comes. If God said it, that settles it. He cannot lie. So what's his motive? His motive is love. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says, God is love. Now, he doesn't just love you. He can't do anything other than that because he is love. Now, the word love that is used there is the term agape. But agape has so many meanings and ramifications and repercussions to it. But one of the meanings is beneficence, his benefit. God wants to benefit you with your heart's desire. So now, if you understand what I just said, this makes faith easy. So if God cannot lie, then you take him at his word. If you understand that his motive is love and he wants to benefit you with what you need, this makes faith easy to receive. I was in a, a meeting in Colorado Springs. I was in a mega church there, and I'll never forget this meeting for two reasons. Number one, the pastor bought 2,000 of my, my books to distribute to his staff and to his volunteers. Now, how many of you know you don't forget that a pastor buying 2,000 of your books? And the other thing was he said, now CNN is here this morning. So I don't want you to do anything that's demonstrative. We don't want to create any more controversy than we've already created. So I said, okay. And so I ministered that morning, and as I was preaching, I noticed as I looked out down the middle aisle, about five or six, maybe seven rows back, there was a man sitting on that aisle who had Parkinson's disease. It's the worst case of Parkinson's I've ever seen. I mean, he's shaking and trembling in such a dramatic fashion that I noticed that even he had to grab the seat in front of him just to find balance to his life. And so <clears throat> after the service is over, we had an altar call, nothing too demonstrative. And, and so <clears throat> um, the, I noticed that his daughter brought the man with Parkinson's disease to me. And she said, would you pray for my daddy? He has Parkinson's disease. I said, yes. As a matter of fact, I believe God is going to do something dramatic in his life right now here in this moment. And she says, well, how can you be so sure? Because I know how much God loves him. Now, when he was standing there, watch this. When he's standing there, he was looking forward, but it was like he was staring off in the distance. When I said that, all of a sudden, he shifted his attention, and we were eyeball to eyeball. We had eye contact. And all of a sudden, I, I found this out later. The rest of his story was this. He'd been away from God for many years. And as he's away from God, he believed he had disqualified himself from receiving a touch from God for the things he had done. When all of a sudden, he, he heard the fact that God loved him. He looked straight at me. Something went from his head to his heart. I laid my hands on him. And all every symptom of Parkinson's disease stopped right there at that moment. He got healed by the Christ of Jesus. I'm here to tell you, faith is abandoning yourself to the trustworthiness of God. 
Principle number one. Principle number two. Faith is the substance. Now, this word substance is the word hypostasis. Hypostasis in Greek has several meanings. It means tangible. It means reality. It means substructure. It means title deed. It means inventory. So it is, it, is, it is tangible. It's real. Faith is not something that's ethereal. I watch Christians all the time walking around saying, well, I just don't know about faith. I don't know if I have enough faith, how to get faith. I just don't know about faith. It's not. Listen, you've got all the faith you're ever going to get. Right now, you just have to renew your mind to what you possess. Now, watch this. So it's, it's tangible. It's real. It is a substructure. I'll show you the substructure just momentarily. It is a title deed. So, CJ, if I were to go back to Naples, Florida, and I were to buy you some land down there, and I would come back and I would hand you a title deed. You've never seen the land, but that land belongs to you because you've got the title deed. There are things that are in the kingdom that you have never seen that have your name on it. And it got everything that you need for life and godliness has been placed there for you to access by his grace through faith because you have a title deed to everything you need for it. And it's an inventory. Where's your inventory? It's right here. Here's my inventory. 7,000 promises of God. Listen to me. You need to know your inventory. It, how can you access something you don't know that exists? You need to begin to access the things that you have by knowing the inventory of God. Now, let me show you something. I saw something about this word I've never seen until this week. So I was found this word, hypostasis, through the New Testament. And I found it also listed in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Turn with me to Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Now, look at this. Hebrews 1, verse 3. See if you can figure out which of these words is hupasasis, it is substance. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his person, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, it's virtually impossible to tell with looking at, unless you're looking at the Greek, but it's the word person. In other words, Jesus is the substance of faith. Now, listen to me. This is the power of we. So most Christians, when they seek to pray in faith, they try to get God to come to their side. When really the key is not having God come to our side, but our coming to God's side. So it's not just a matter of saying, God, I need this, and you begin to pray. It's your inquiring of God that he can show you what the real need is, and that releases the power of we in your life. So he says, faith is... Trusting in the character that God cannot lie, his motive that it's love, that it is his substance that you have a title deed inventory. You're releasing the power of we in your life of things. Now this word things is a Greek word pragma. It means a thing already done. So I'm not trying to get God to do what he's already done. I'm trying to receive by, by grace, by, by faith, what he did by grace. And so what happens is you're saying, I'm trying to get God to heal me. I'm trying to get God to bless me. I'm trying to get God. No, he's already done that. The sooner you realize that the work is finished, that we're not waiting on God, God is waiting on us. Come on, somebody. It's things. Now, if you take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, who has blessed us, in the heavenly realm of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. 
Now, when I say that's written in the past, in the Greek, it's written in what one author calls the eternal past. From the foundation of time, God ordained that his work of his son be finished, that you could have access to it for everything that you need for life. And if God cannot lie and he wants to benefit you and he's already accomplished, man, how many of you know that's the blessing that's waiting to happen in your life? Now watch this. So faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now this word hope is not what we see in English. I'm kind of wishing and hoping. It's the Greek word elpis. It means, it means to expect or to anticipate. So what happens is when you begin to realize God cannot lie and that his motive is love and that there's a title deed in inventory, the power we is released of things that's already created, it creates an anticipation and an expectation inside of you. Now, there is in Scripture what I call the law of expectation that says this. What you expect in your heart with conviction becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. So psychologists tell you that 85% of your actions are the result of your expectations. What you do or don't do is the result of what you expect the results to take place. Now watch. The enemy, this is where the enemy tries to stop what comes to your life. He tries to stop it because hope deferred makes the heart sick. So he wants, what he wants to do is to crush your hope, to crush your expectation, to crush your anticipation. And for some of you sitting here right now, there are things that God has promised you that have been delayed for a period of time and you've lost hope. But God's about to bring your breakout here this morning. So let me give you, let me give you a story about this. So... Judy and I were doing a meeting in Mexico. We flew into Guadalajara. We spent a day there. And then our host missionary picked us up to take us to our destination. And we would drive by these cities. He'd go, there's a, there's a town of 75,000 people, no gospel work. Town of 50,000 people, no gospel work. Town of 25,000, no gospel work. So finally, we got to the little town we were to minister in called Ciudad Guzman. And it had none of the conveniences we just take for granted in America, no hot and cold, running water, no electricity. In fact, the church itself was nothing more than three unfinished walls with a canopy that was draped over it that leaked like a sieve when it rained. And one night in the rain, we ministered to the sick for three hours. This is their estimation to us. This is not our estimation. They said that 90% of the people we laid hands on received an instantaneous touch from God in that place. There was a, there was a revival. Crowds were just busting out. And so the next day after that, this pastor comes to me and says, he says, you got to preach on marital fidelity. So what do you mean? We're kind of having a move of God here. What do you mean marital fidelity? He said, well, the men here don't feel like they're really men unless they have two or three women on the sly, even in the church. He said, you got to preach on marital fidelity. So how many of you know, you don't come to do your thing, you come to do their thing. So I got up that night and I said something like this. Women should be esteemed. Women should be elevated. Women should be lifted up. Come on, ladies. I'm expecting a few amens in here. As soon as I said that, I looked out in the front row, and there's this guy going just like this. And I thought to myself, you turkey, you're not going to intimidate me. I leaped off the platform. I got right down his face. Like, God, i got to play for women. I'm getting real intense. He just sat there with me. So finally, I just left him be, and I went out with the service. God did a lot of great things that night. And so after the service is over, I'm behind the platform. And the American team comes up to me, and they say, 
man, did you see that guy openly defy you in the meeting tonight? I said, I know, it was incredible. I couldn't believe he did that. The pastor's now overhearing me. I said, what, what, what took place? I said, when I was talking about women and everything, there was a guy in the front row shaking his head no at me. He said, who was it? So I reached around, looking around the other side of the platform, and I, I looked and I said, it's that guy right there. He goes, oh, Ron. He said, that's Julio. He has a nervous condition. His head always goes like this. <laughs> I went back to my bungalow, and God said to me, things are not always as they seem. But listen to me. Things are not always as they seem in your life. It may look like the breakthroughs are not coming. It may look like things are not happening. It may look like the world's in trouble. But I'm telling you, things are not always as they seem. There's always room for hope to take place in your life. Your breakout is on the way. So faith. The, the trusting in the, the trustworthiness of God. In that he cannot lie, that his love creates a substance of the power of we, of things hoped for, the evidence. Now, this word evidence, fifthly, is a word I overlooked for a long time. This word means confidence of being evident, making easy to see, clear, obvious to persuade. You'll always, always believe where you see the most evidence. Now, I want you, I want you to see this. Because doubt and sin always come from believing a lie. Listen to me. Doubt and sin always come from believing a lie. So if somebody comes to you and they say something to you like, well, God doesn't love me. God could never love me. Listen, 4.4 billion people on planet Earth feel unloved. 60% of the planet at one particular time or another feels like they're not loved. And yet the scripture says nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are loved. So you, you just don't understand. Say, I, I, I feel rejected. I, I come from a broken home. Well, welcome to the club. Most of us have come from a broken home in one way, shape, form, or another. Most of us feel rejected. We're all rejected. Some are more rejected than others. Some of us feel like we're, we, we've not been chosen. I used to play ball when we were a kid, and we'd, we'd choose up teams in the neighborhood. And so we'd choose up teams in the neighborhood. I had a friend of mine who was always the last one chosen, and it just made him feel terrible. He was always hoping that somebody would choose. One time I was the captain, and I chose him first just so he wouldn't be last every single time. And he, he, just, felt, he just felt like he was never chosen. Well, sometimes we feel that way too. We feel rejected. We feel chosen. We're not chosen. But let me tell you something. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, from the foundation of time, he chose you. He chose you from the foundation of time. Uh, uh, John chapter 15 verse 16 says, you have not chosen me. I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Now, I want you to see this. You'll always believe where there's the most evidence. You remember the story of David and Goliath? You know that story? And here's the story that Goliath is intimidating the armies of Israel. What good reason? The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 15, he's nine foot tall. How many of the Golden State Warriors are even trying to recruit him, man? He's nine foot tall. <laughs> he has armor that weighs most than most of you women in here. His spear is 15 pounds in and of itself. And he's coming out like WWE wrestling, and he's intimidating the entire, he's going, and everybody is just freaking out. 
So one day, David shows up, little shepherd boy. David shows up, and he walks up. He says, what's happening? Well, they say Goliath is out there, and he's challenging us to a fight, and everybody's intimidated. So all of a sudden, David stands up, and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Why do you have to go and bring that up? You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's kind of odd. You see the troops saying, did you know he wasn't circumcised? I didn't know. Did you know? Nobody knows. So let me get this straight. You want to kill this guy because he hasn't seen his urologist. I mean, I don't understand this. <laughs> but circumcision was a sign of covenant. And what David was saying is, I have a covenant and he does not. I am accessing the power of we. And so what happened was everybody there was looking at the outside evidence. But David was looking at evidence that is not seen. He had a covenant with God. And he knew that he and God made a majority. And no matter what it was, they were going to win. Now understand this. It is the evidence of things unseen. All right, now listen to me carefully. What's easier to believe, what's seen or what's unseen? So it's easier to believe what you see. You have to practice the unseen. All right, now listen to me. Listen to me. In John chapter 14 and verse 21, it says this. He that hath my commandments and keeps them he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me should be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, this word keep that's used there, he, he that hath my command and keeps them, is a fascinating word. That word means to attend or to guard or to pay attention to. So if you follow that word attend through the Old Testament, it always means to meditate. And so what he's saying is meditate on the word of God, meditate on the unseen things until it gets in your heart. So John Gill says this about that word. It means not mere external revelation, but written on the heart by the finger of God and keeps them under the influence of grace. Let me say it to you again. Not mere external revelation, so I'm keeping it, not mere external revelation, but written on the heart by the finger of God and keeps them under the influence of grace. R.C.H. Lenski says this, it holds in his heart, he takes and he holds in his heart against all opposition. So when you attend to it, when you meditate on it, when you regurgitate it, it gets in your heart and you hold that in your heart against all opposition. When things don't look like they're going to work from you, there's something in your heart that says there's something different. And what happens is that when the unseen is bigger than the seen, the unseen will dominate the seen. Let me say it again. When what you see in the unseen is more real than the seen, the unseen will dominate the seen and Jesus shows up on the scene. How do I tend to it? I say it, I pray it, I obey it. Now listen to me. It's time for you to stop confessing your circumstances and start confessing the word of God. Come on, can I get an amen? Now wait, wait, wait. So some people say, man, I've been doing that for a long time. I've been confessing and nothing happens. In fact, research says that if you confess a thing, it only happens about 10% of the time. But listen to this. There's a study called Psycholinguistic, and here's what they found. If you just confess it, it gets into your personal belief system 10%. There's your 10%. But if it gets into your 
<clears throat> but if you begin to not only to confess it, but you imagine it, you see it, it gets in 55%. But if you confess it and see it and feel the emotion of it, it gets in 100%. So you confess it. You say it. You speak to your mountain. You speak to your mountain and say, be thou removed. How I many of it's time for us to stop telling God about our mountain and start telling our mountain about our God? Amen. You say it. You pray it. Now listen to me. You pray it. Now listen to me. How many of you, don't raise your hands. How many of you here pray for this service today? Now listen, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to commend you either. How many of you pray? What would happen if every single one of us would commit to pray for our services weekly, would pray for pastors Paul and Ashley? What would happen? There would be an explosion of faith that would take place. You say it, you pray it, you obey it. Let me finish with this. In 2007, I called Dodie Osteen. She's the mom of Joel Osteen. John Osteen was her husband. And I said, Dodie, your story is so inspiring. Would you retell it to me? And she did. I said, now, would you send it to me in a letter? So when she sent it to me in a letter, I want to read to you what it said. In 1981, these are the facts. Dodie was diagnosed with metastatic liver cancer. It was my privilege to know the Osteen family, and so she and I were able to talk. So in October 1981, Dodie had a series of tests run right here at the City of Faith Hospital right here in Tulsa, and that included grueling schedule of CT scans and upper and lower GIs and bone marrow biopsies and uterine biopsies. Then came the haunting words, your cancer is malignant. As you can well imagine, the emotions ran from astonishment to denial. And then came the seemingly final pronouncement, even with chemotherapy, you only have a few weeks to live. In the midst of the ensuing struggle, Dodie realized it was not the faith of her famous friends that would, that would help her and deliver her. It wasn't the faith of Old Roberts or Kenneth Hagin or her husband John or son Joel that would turn the tide. It would have to be her own belief and it had to be that would set her free. Transforming her personal belief system was the key to her healing. She began the fight by refusing to lie down in bed or letting others take care of her. She was committed not to act sick. In fact, she had set the law of attraction in motion by saying, pray ye one for another. She knew that praying for another person would be the key to her healing. She began to establish in her heart that God could not lie. If his word said it, then it was true. The process, however, was a, was a war. She said that she never wavered in her heart, but she did in her head. According to Hebrews 4.12, there was a back and forth of her soul and her spirit. There were times to deal with fear, and there were times to cast down imaginations. She laughed at the symptom, which warred against the thoughts. She, was, she disassociated herself from the thoughts of the worst-case scenario with, with new empowering thoughts from God's Word. The greatest struggle came in the, in the lonely moments during the night, in the middle of the night. During this time, her family treated her 
as, as if she were normal. They kept the pity parties minimalized and helped her to focus on God's truth. She meditated on 40 scriptures every single day during that time of her day. She made herself congruent with heaven's will. She, the truth permeated her mind and her heart. Confession was a daily ritual for her as, as well as a struggle. She watched over the words of her mouth. She confessed, I am healed. And she began to set it in her heart. Finally, on November 1983, the Osteen's personal physician, Dr. Reginald Cherry, said, you'll never understand and fully appreciate the magnitude of the fact that Dodie, Eli, that Dodie Osteen is completely and totally healed of metastatic cancer. 25 years later, she's standing by her son, Joel, at Lakewood watching things take It's time for faith to be reignited in the church. Listen to me, folks. God wants to give you a breakout in your life. Bow your head, close your eyes. With heads bowed, eyes closed. This is not a message for your neighbor. This is not a message for someone else. This is not a message that you sit condescendingly and say, I don't need this, but somebody else does. This is for every single person in this room. What stronghold is it time for you to break out from? Every one of you, what I'm asking you individually right now. What stronghold is it time for you to break out from? What stronghold do you want to break out from this year? Maybe your stronghold is business. Maybe your stronghold is family. Maybe your stronghold is your children. Maybe your stronghold is healing, it's health. Maybe your stronghold is prosperity. Maybe your stronghold is peace. Maybe your stronghold is fear. Maybe your stronghold is discouragement. Maybe it's not for, for you, but it's for somebody else. You're contending for someone else's life for the stronghold to be broken. Maybe it's you're contending for a move of God and you won't let go of it. You're holding it in your heart against all opposition. Now, you think, what stronghold do you want broken in your life this year? And whatever comes to your mind, start to raise your hand across this auditorium. Start to raise your hand, start to raise your hand, start to raise your hand, raise your hand, 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 hand. What stronghold do you want broken? 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 Maybe you're sitting here saying, you know what? I've never responded to an altar call ever before. We had several people who did that today. But what happens is you're saying, you know what? There is a stronghold for someone else, and I'm willing to stand for it unselfishly. Slip your hand up in the air as well. Now, speak over it. Speak to it. Speak to it. Confess the Word of God. See the Word of God. Feel the Word of God. Say it. Pray it. Now, obey it. If you slipped your hand up, 
when I count to three, I want you to stand to your feet without hesitation because your breakthrough is on the other side. Are you ready? You raised your hand or didn't, but should have when I count to three, stand. Ready? One, two, three, stand. Stand, 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 stand. Now watch, watch. Here's the next step. This is your breakout. This is your moment. What I want you to do, I want you to hear me. Now I want you to obey. I want you to get out of your seat and come stand down here at this altar. Come right now. Come, 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 come. From the top balcony, from the front row, come stand, come stand, come stand, come, 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 come. Come on. Come on. Your breakout. Come on. We're waiting on you. Come on. Come on. Come from the balcony. Come on. We're waiting on you. Come on. Come on, team. Lead us. Come on. Spread all the way out here to the far side. Up the aisle. Look at me and listen to me for just a moment. In 1 Chronicles chapter 14, David was ordained king. And he set out from Jerusalem and it says the Philistines came against him. They were ready to take him out. But the first thing David did, it says he inquired of the Lord. Now listen to me. He didn't try to get God on his side. He tried to get on God's side. He said, Lord, what should I do? And God says, pursue and overtake. And so he says he did. And it says when he attacked the Philistines, it was like he broke out. It broke out as water upon the people. And he says the city where he was was named Baal Perizim. Now for years that confused me because I've heard that Perizim means breakthrough. But Baal is a false god that the Philistines worship. So certainly this is not Baal breakthrough. That's not what he's saying. So I looked at a Hebrew scholar and he says, it doesn't mean breakthrough. It means to break out against or break out over. He broke out over his enemy and destroyed them and had a breakout. And from that day forward in that generation, the Philistines were in it. Now, I don't care where you are. I don't care how close you are to the front, how far you are from the back. I see people all the way up, every aisle, all the way to the balcony. But I'm here to tell you right now, God wants to bring breakouts. 
There are healings that need to take place. There's provision that needs to happen. There are families that need to be put back together. God wants to do it. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. His motive towards you is love. He wants to give you the benefit that you desire if you'll just release on the inside of you and begin to get in touch.